Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Bind, a podcast about food and relationships. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer based in Atlanta, Georgia. This week's guest is Nicole Taylor. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for being here. Oh my gosh, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on. This has been a, this has been a long time coming. I know. Uh, full disclosure, Nicole has hired me in the past to work for her as an editor, um, but this is about her. Can you actually introduce yourself to people who might not know who you are? I am Nicole A. Taylor. Um, it's so hard for me to introduce myself, but I guess I'm a food writer and producer. That's what I'm calling myself these days. I'm not a culinary historian. Someone tagged me earlier and said that, and I'm like, no, I'm not a chef. Um, I, I, I guess I could add to the food writer, producer, I would say master home cook. I like producer. I saw that on your website and I was like, instead of, that's a really smart word instead of like content creator. <laughs> like, I love that word because it's so broad. Well, I mean, but it also speaks to the work I've done. You know, I, I executive produced a short film about the integration of the varsity here in Athens. I've produced multimedia projects for large media companies. So I, I think it's an appropriate word for the work that I've done. I mean, it's bold, but it's the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you take us back a little bit more? Um, you live between Georgia and New York. Uh, but you're originally from Athens. Yeah. Um, can you kind of just like walk me back and take me through just where you started? And then I do want to get into food because that is how we are connected. Sure. Um, born and raised in Athens, Georgia. It's so funny because nowadays people, they're like, Athens, where is that? 60 miles outside of Atlanta, home of the University of Georgia. Also a huge music scene here. So people know R.E.M. and Widespread Panic and Drive-By Truckers. Um, I left here as an 18-year-old back in the mid-90s, the year of the Olympics, and moved to Atlanta um, to go uh, or to attend Clark Atlanta University. Uh, and I stayed in Atlanta for 13 years after that. Um, I always thought that I would be a... Um, public health educator i did some of that work early on my first job out of college was at the american cancer society um and i was involved in so many environmental and parks volunteer organizations back in the day park pride i remember when the belt line was just an idea and like volunteering for that and my husband did some shirts for brian gravel and kathy wow back in the day and this was like really the early early days so um yeah i've always my, my my 20s and right after college my professional experience was always rooted in community and health and com and environmental um work but in the background i was always freaking cooking and whole and hosting people and going to like the latest and greatest of atlanta restaurants and I, I was laughing with a dear friend about how obsessed I was with food and how I stood in line forever and a day at two Urban Licks. Remember that spot, Jennifer? Oh, my God. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> and they're still open. And the uh, the salmon chips, sal salmon, salmon. How am I supposed to say that? The chips are still on the menu. That's crazy. It was like a really red restaurant, I remember. And they had like these weird, like, pillars or something i can't remember but it is still there and now it's a much different place i oh, mean as you said with the, the belt line no but just like it's like it was there remember when you used to go to it and you would like drive like behind like some warehouse and yes. it felt like you were like on this hidden secret right but yeah. now the belt line has just exploded around it and it's it's wild that it's still there that would be very interesting to go back yeah. there and, and see what it's like yeah so but you, was, you're a cooker. You were cooking, though, a lot at home. And I also was going out. I mean, this was a time when, like, going out to me was fancy. was, like, going to two urban lakes, going to the Shark Bar. Uh, remember the Shark Bar? Going to Justin's. So mm -hmm. I was very much connected to the latest and the greatest in Atlanta dining scene. But I was cooking at home. I mean, I learned how to cook when I was, like, before I was a teenager. I was cooking food, baking cakes, um, cooking for myself. 
in college, my apartment when I moved off campus and my dorm was always the place where people gathered and I was always cooking. So I never even saw myself as like, oh, you're a home cook. You're obsessed with food. I just thought it was normal. I thought all of it was normal. The obsession with restaurants and everything. One of my friends, I, I sold real estate for a moment. That was kind of my last thing that I did, like 20, 2008, 2007, before I moved to New York, right before the market went crazy. I was selling real estate because I always understood the value of real estate and owning property. Not because I was just like, is totally obsessed with that profession. Um, but I sold real estate and one of my friends who I partnered up a lot in the real estate world, um, she was like, you need to do your own Zagat. And I'm like, do I? She's like, yeah, you know all the spots. Um, so that was kind of the seed of me kind of understanding that I had this magical power inside of me around food. Um, and people wanted to be around me and people wanted my recommendations, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't really know what that meant until I moved to New York City in 2008. And so that was really when your food writing career took off? That was really when I understood that you could make a living um, doing the thing I was obsessed with. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I can't say that's when my food career took off. No. Right. I moved to New York because my husband got a job there. He works in advertising. Um, and so we moved there in the spring of 2008. And I actually got a job at New Yorkers for Parks. Um, so I was really excited about that. I've always been into like fashion and always randomly had like part-time jobs in, in, um, retail jobs so i was working at kate spade at the time i worked at kate spade at lennox part-time and then i transferred and was working at the soho kate spade store that was like the flagship store i remember being like that's ah. a cool store that's like i like i mean that's a cool area much like better that. than lennox <laughs> right and this is at the time when the brand was still very much like the old kate spade so um it was um it was amazing and so funny you know to bring it back to food van lewin um which is a big ice cream brand now you can find them at walmart they had a truck two blocks from the kate spade store and my introduction to them that was like the first year that they opened in 2008 that truck i used to go like every day and get some ice cream off their truck and so I follow that brand for so long. And when I see them, I think about me working at that store part-time. So I had two jobs in New York for a brief moment. And um, the list, my list, the same list that I kept in Atlanta, I started a New York one. And I just started like going to lunch, going to dinner, going to breakfast, rolling up on restaurants and just looking on the menu outside and just sitting at the bar and ordering one thing. Um, I just taught myself how to maneuver and how to be, um, a New York food person. <laughs> Literally, I think my whole career, um, in my professional career in food media started with me being super curious. Like it started in Atlanta, started in Athens really, but started in Atlanta. And when I came to New York, I just, I was fortunate enough to have a husband um, that could pay the rent, pay the bills. And so I could take my money and put it into this obsession. And then later it became a, a career. Um, I think the, the moment for me, though, is 2009, 2010. I forget the dates. Um, I started hosting a podcast on Heritage Radio Network. That was kind of the moment where was I was like, Grease, hot grease, hot grease. Hot yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I started hosting a podcast because I was. And this was it. way back before podcasts were a thing. You told me you were like, yeah, you were doing it before. Yeah, it was way before it was a thing. Um, and now I look back how I was part of a really a renaissance in, in, in food culture in America. Right. Um, I started hosting the podcast on Heritage Radio Network which was two con shipping containers that are actually still in the garden of Roberta's Pizza. 
Wow. If you don't know Roberta's, you ain't popping. <laughs> you don't know what's up. <laughs> this was the early days of Roberta's. And what a dream I, atmosphere to work in. Wow. Yeah. Shipping container in front of Roberta's. Nice. Yeah. And this was before shipping containers were super huge. Like everyone's right. doing stuff with shipping containers mm -hmm. now. And, 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 God bless the late Ann Saxelby because I found out about Heritage Radio Network because I was getting her newsletter uh, because I was, I was obsessed with cheese and I would always go to her cheese shop. So I was like, wait, I should host a podcast. Um, so I pitched the show and I did like 170 something, almost 200 shows talking to people from the American South and also talking to people in New York and primarily people of color, black people who were doing work in food in the very early days, right? And um, I'm super proud of that work because back then, I was talking about Juneteenth. <laughs> Every year, that was like 2009, I did a big show on Juneteenth. And I wouldn't, back then, I did not think that Juneteenth would be a nationally recognized holiday and you couldn't have told me that i would have had a whole entire cookbook dedicated, <laughs> dedicated to the holiday i would have been like what nah you may have watched that ratatouille movie by now uh there's like that moment when he's like no okay well there's this moment when the restaurant critic is sitting there and he's at the table and he eats this super peasant dish of ratatouille and like the shot goes to him sitting there and he's had a bad day at school and his mom is feeding him ratatouille like was it was like that crystallizing moment i think when like food connected um do you have something like that in your past like a piece of food a, a plate you know an experience at a restaurant something where you're like oh this is more than something i just do for pleasure on the side um this is something for me i can't think of a moment i can't exact moment like that but i think there have been a combination of things that happened when i realized like mm. i mean I, let me let me keep it real with you i kind of grew up thinking that like i was a girl i wanted to erase that from my life <laughs> uh for lack of better words you know i wanted to be you know Collinson, Atlanta woman who was of the world. Um, so that pot of beans that was always on my, I thought nothing of it. I mean, like having pins beans and uh, Crowder peas and fresh hot cornbread around all the time. Please, I, I wanted to get so far away from that. And, you know, seriously, I'm glad and that you're keeping it real, cloth, you know? Yeah. And using cloth napkins and cloth dish towels. I wanted like, I wanted my aunts and my mom to always be buying a roll of paper towels, like friends. Like, why are we using, why are we using cloth stuff to wash our hands? Um, I thought it was crazy. And literally when I moved to New York and in this food renaissance this hipster brooklyn renaissance is when i realized like wait all of these things that are in fashion all of these things that are on the front page of every food magazine or people doing it's like the total cloth. aesthetic cloth napkins crowder peas and so that really set you up to be able to write your first cookbook right i mean because yeah. it was those two worlds i've heard you say of brooklyn and the south yeah and even when i when i look back at the very proud of that because it's definitely a moment in time. I literally look at the snobbery <laughs> of myself, <laughs> how I'm talking about all the fancy cornmeal and <laughs> I'm talking about going to Sahadi's. These are places and products that I still use now, but the way that I put them in, I, I probably would, I know I wouldn't do that now. I didn't do that for this, for this new cookbook, but that moment, those years in Brooklyn, in New York City, was that I realized, like, I have something special. Like, my childhood was more than um, <laughs> just, you know, a country girl, country girl living in a working class neighborhood, being working class people. I realized that I had something special. And... 
And in, during that time in New York, you wrote this book, the Up South Cookbook. You also wrote the last OG cookbook, um, which I'm not really familiar with, but I saw that when I was like researching for today. It had like Tracy Morgan on the cover. Wait, could you talk about that? Yeah. So the Up South Cookbook, Chasing Dixon. Um, what is it? Chasing Dixie in Brooklyn. I think that's the subtitle, which is funny because everyone's like, Dixie, Ugh, you really want to use that? I'm like, sure. I reclaim that world, that word, excuse me. Um, I wrote it in 2015, right? Last OG went to my lab. I was actually pregnant with my son. So in this summer of 2000, call and they're like, hey, I, we think you'd be perfect to write this cookbook about a TV show. Uh, write this cookbook inspired by a TV show that's out right now. But they couldn't tell me what the TV show was. It's about food, about, you know, Southern culture, a little black, it's black characters. I thought it was Queen Sugar, okay? <laughs> <laughs> if you know Queen Sugar, own, I was like, gosh, it, it must be Queen Sugar. It's Oprah. <laughs> uh and it wasn't so then they, and then they sold the book they came back and they're like oh it's um organs um the last og and i'm like oh dope uh i'd never seen the show before uh, i immediately went out and like saw the episodes um of season one and i was excited about it because it was about tracy moore character trey um getting out of prison and re-entering the world coming back to his neighborhood in brooklyn that had been completely gentrified it's kind of loosely based on bedford stuyvesant or bed that's the neighborhood that i lived in for 13 plus years um a traditional black neighborhood people from the american south the largest population of Caribbean folks outside of the hmm. Caribbean live in bed style. I didn't know there was so a lot was of Southern excited. population there. That's interesting. Oh, oh of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I'm in bed, I'm in bed style and I get off at Fulton. I feel like I am in the West End. I feel like I am back to the Atlanta that I became an adult in. That busy strip right there just reminds me so much of Black Atlanta. Um, the Black, you know, when I was a kid, I would go to like Kessler's downtown Atlanta and, you know, see all the folks being mainly Black folks, the Marta bus. I, I really, when I got off the train at Nostrand and um, Nostrand Avenue in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. But yeah, so I was excited because Bedford Stuyvesant felt like home to me. You know, you roll up in the grocery store, you're trying to get your collard greens on New Year's Eve, and they're like, three other Southern black ladies, they hear my voice and they're like, where are you from? Like Georgia, they're like, I'm from South Carolina. I've been here 50 some years. But yeah, there is a massive population of folks who have roots in South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia for Stuyvesant, as well as Harlem, but huge population in, in Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, 100%. And New York was where oh, New York was where you 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 were the editor for Thrillist, and just kind of piggybacking on something you said earlier that when you were younger, you really like craved that status. You wanted to be an Atlanta woman and fancy and above the town. And like, I mean, there's really no like more important position sometimes than a food editor because you're constantly going to these restaurants you're constantly getting pitched what was that like for you what was that experience like for you i've always just been a freelancer so <laughs> i don't know i mean i have to say you know before i got a very amazing role at thrillers in the summer of 2019 i mean i'll keep it real with you i was already doing the work i already had a very exciting life a very exciting professional life that I created for myself. Um, I mean, which is good and bad, right? I feel like, and I know for a fact that I didn't have the opportunities to kind of rise up from the bottom of like a uh, Condé Nast publication or, you know, food and wine or work at another digital company. So when I arrived at Thrillers, um, <laughs> Uh, some of the perks and a lot of the perks of being an editor, honestly, um, 
I wasn't like excited about them because I was already doing them right for right. me at that moment at thrill is what was most important to me is doing really great work and um, making sure when I left the place that I opened up the door for someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was very exciting. It was so cool to do the best new restaurant package, which you helped put together. Um, and I can say hands down, um, I was, I started a movement where people stopped, you know, having just one critic to do best new restaurants. I mean, I think people are always collaborating, you know, all the big editors who were doing um, best new restaurant packages. I never, I don't, I don't think they were just working in a vacuum ever, but mm -hmm. now you see that that whole model that I created is everywhere now. <laughs> That's how everyone's doing it. And I'm proud that package was nominated for James Beard. I wrote another piece during my time at Thrillist, um, which I didn't do very much writing. It was a lot of, um, a lot of producing work, a lot of producing. <laughs> producing. Yes. Lot of, um, I mean, you produced the hell out of that best new restaurant package because it was so layered with, from a media perspective, it was fun to navigate. Um, and I think a lot of those things can also read kind of flat sometimes, but I a hundred percent agree with you. I've been a restaurant critic now for 15 years, although I don't know that I am one anymore because COVID, but, um, everything was shifted. But, uh, I always used to say that it was much better for us to choose like best new restaurants for Atlanta magazine when I was there or for creative loafing when it was all of us because we all live in different parts of town. We all have different experiences. Um, it just makes for a stronger list, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'm well, proud of that work there. And as you know, the work, um, we all know what happened the winter of 2020 going into the spring. Huh? The C word, COVID, mm. <laughs> the global pandemic took off and um, I was laid off at Thrillist. And immediately um, I started working on this proposal that had been marinating for quite some time. And that was the Juneteenth cookbook. And, you know, it was so much going on around us at this time. I'm, you know, finishing the cookbook proposal. I'm working my ass off doing freelance stuff. And, you know, the uprisings are literally happening in my backyard in my backyard, one of the COVID hospitals where I can like hear sirens all night. There were fireworks. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Um, my husband and I were like literally working 12 hours a day on work in the same room. I would hop in the bathroom to take calls. He would go in the bathroom to take calls. We would be working in the same room. It was insane. It was, you know, I get, and how old was your son at this time? My son was what? Uh, one one and a half oh it wasn't my god yet. you were in the thick of it i mean i was very fortunate i had a nanny who actually stayed around the whole time she actually brought her son she always brought her wow. son um but we were just like hunkered down day after day it was insane and one day my husband came home and was like we should move to athens it was on a sunday I was like, now nah, he came home. <laughs> we were, we never left home. <laughs> he came into the other room. <laughs> exactly. He came to the other room. I was like, we should move to Athens. I'm like, huh? I, I was, I was so thrown. I mean, we had been talking about buying like a condo investment property in Athens, but I'm like, uh, huh? He was like, we got to get out of here. I'm drowning. He's like, mm -hmm. we're just stuck in this apartment. Like we, we, we need to get away from New York for a moment. And uh, for an entire day, I was just like, this is crazy. I can't believe he proposed this. And then the next day I was like, I hear you. He was like, you know, we don't have to stay there forever. We just, to this, to this pandemic passes, we'll stay down there and then we'll come back. I went online. I found a house. I was like, oh, this is our house. <laughs> it was a, <laughs> a mid-century modern house. It had been on the market forever. And, and you said you were into real estate and you have always had a need to own land. You see oh, a big always. importance in owning land. I would love for you to talk to, you know, oh. that as well as part of this decision. I mean, listen, I mean, what I didn't say earlier in the interview, uh, at 25 years old, when I lived in Atlanta, I bought a house. <laughs> I bought a house literally two blocks from what now is Westside Park. Um and I was young. I bought a 1920s bungalow, renovated it. So I grew up in Athens where my 
people own land and own a house. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were black working class people, people from the woman who worked at the cleaners, who was our next door neighbor, to school teachers, to the first black city councilman. I live in the neighborhood and they all own their house, their houses, you know? So mm-hmm. in, a, in a subconscious way, part of what I knew as success was you owned a house. I never was in the cars. I never cared about a car, but I knew that owning land meant that, you know, you always have somewhere to go. Your family always has somewhere to go. So, Hey, when Adrian said that, I'm like, let's do it. So we bought the house sight unseen. Our dear friends that live in Atlanta, they came, we did a video tour. The first time we saw the house is when we closed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, um, I had some great people. I was lucky, you know, early on in the process to kind of partner with a few people in Athens to get some of the renovations going. And a month later, we we hopped on a flight and we bought a car in the middle of the pandemic too, sight unseen. Uh, <laughs> so we had to, you know, get our car from in, from New York to Athens. And at first we were like, oh, let's just keep a storage in New York. And I'm like, you know what? N- let's not. Well, I think my husband said, let's not. So we just kind of went through all of our stuff. We already had a storage in New York. I should say that. And I was like, I've had a storage for 10 plus years in New York, you know, 15 years. This is crazy. Look at all the money I've spent. It's like, no, I want to get rid of this storage. I'm not keeping this. So we, we basically came down here with the thought of we'll be back in New York in the winter. And um, <laughs> we did not return in winter. We have gone for, you know, extended periods of time, you know, right after everyone got um, the COVID vaccine, we went to New York for like a month and a half, you know, so we've been back and forth a lot because, you know, as much as I've tried to make Athens, Atlanta, my home, and it is my home, my home, my heart, my community and where I feel most alive is in New York City. I can't, I cannot deny that. And so it's been beautiful to be down south and be grounded as I write or wrote this cookbook and tested recipes. It did something to my brain that I don't think I would have gotten in New York. It would have happened in New York in so many ways. And I'm grateful for that. Um, just like being around all these trees and looking outside and hearing and seeing birds. And also, too, you know, I, I did this funny Instagram story today about how, you know, I was, I'm still a food snob, (laughs) but now I'm a food snob that understands like nobody is going to five different grocery stores a day to, to make whatever you're going to make, Nicole. Like you should go to Aldi's and figure out what, what are people eating in America? How are they shopping? So being down here, um, informed my book in a way that I'm like, everything needs to be approached. Everything needs to be approachable Mm -hmm. and within reach. If people shop at Walmart, they should be able to go to Walmart and buy everything to make a funnel cake or to create a really cool cookout or barbecue or dessert or ice cream. They should be able to go to Kroger or whatever regional grocery store that's in their area. I should not have a cookbook full of specialty ingredients. So it's not everyone's a foodie that's going to read your book, right? I mean, a lot of people might be just looking to celebrate holidays and whatnot. I mean, we, I think we always, some, well, we don't always, but something that gets reminded to me is that not everyone's a foodie. Not everybody is inside baseball. Exactly. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that you're making it an approachable book because I do think it'll sell more and be more useful. And I believe in being useful in our writing. Um so it's, I can't wait to see it. And, and this is the, the Juneteenth cookbook um, uh, that you are writing, um, which is called Watermelon and Redbirds, and it's going to be out May 31st. Is that right? It is. It's out May 31st, Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. Over 75 recipes dedicated to the new nationally recognized holiday. It's a, it's a new holiday for all Americans. And this cookbook, is for all Americans. No matter who you are, you can pick this cookbook up and read the the stories, you know, about me celebrating Juneteenth for the last 10 years, but you also can cook from it, no matter who you are. Uh, But it it is written from my POV, which is about 
a lot of what we've talked about today. And that is, you know, living in New York, uh, living in the South, going to school in the South, growing up where summers were full of, you know, family reunions and trips to Six Flags and um, trips to Myrtle Beach, road trips. So I tried to infuse not only Juneteenth into this book, but what it what it meant to be a, or what it means to be a black person in America in the summertime and gathering with family and friends. But the book is for everyone, 100%. Yeah, I mean, you have been in the New York Times writing about this, so it seems like a real fit for you. I mean, something you, you talked about a bit was just owning land. Is, is owning land um, as a black woman in the South meaningful to you mm. as well? Wow, that's a powerful question, 100%. I mean, when I think about June 19, 1865, I mean, that is the day that General Granger went to Galveston, Texas, and told enslaved Texans that they were free. And I just think about, like, what my ancestors wanted. They are my ancestors. What my own grandmother what my own mom wanted my aunts i mean i think they wanted freedom and part of that definition of freedom is to own your own land to have your place in this world and no one can take away from you something to show for all of the hard work i mean it is very difficult um <laughs> to buy property in new york i mean it's very difficult now to buy property anywhere because oh my god atlanta's the, even getting crazy expensive yeah it's, it's, it's really it's really expensive. And I, I just feel like for so long, I worked so hard um, to build a life. And I wanted, I wanted a place that I could come to that was, um, that showed like all the different parts of me. My husband and I both wanted to, a place to show all the parts of who we are. But it's super important. Um, if you have the means um, to be a black woman in the South with my name on a deed in Athens, Georgia, that's huge. And not only just to own property, but to create this experience. Like I've been lucky, like since we've been out of, you know, crazy, crazy COVID times, like a lot of my creative friends who live in New York, who live in different parts of the U.S. have been to this place and they're like, wow. And, you know, I'm on the outskirts of Athens. It's on five acres and no one ever wants to leave. and it is the same thing that has always happened. You know, even when I was in the tiny apartment off of, <laughs> <laughs> off of Campbellton and Delow in Atlanta, or me and my husband were in a smaller apartment in Brooklyn, we've always created spaces um, and created an atmosphere that made people feel like, um, like uh, made people feel like this is a place where you can totally be free. Um, and all of that is kind of wrapped up in Juneteenth and black and wrapped up in Jap black celebrations too. And this cookbook, like coming to a place where <laughs> every room has a speaker <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're, we're jamming music all the time. And like, there are always, there's always a drink happening. You know, there may be a red drink, but we always will have a signature drink and food. So, so is this, is this house, the maroon house, which I kind of, started yeah. following on instagram which you say is a marketplace and retreat house focused on radical rest for black creatives yeah um that's beautiful thank and you and really interesting um yeah yeah can you talk so, about that evolution yeah so this house of course we came here escaping COVID, but we also this was it's it was never meant to be a place where we we're living at full time you know we always said we want to create a space for us to get out of the hustle and bustle of New York City. And I mean, a part of who we are and a part of who I am is always thinking about the community around me. Like that's just kind of ingrained in me. And I was like, you know what? I want to make this a place where any of my friends, particularly my black creative friends, if they want to come here and just chill out and relax and, you know, work on their cookbook or finish up, you know, an application for, um, you know, a postdoctoral fellowship that they could come here and the pantries would be well stocked and they could walk the property, uh, bird watch, 
pull out the binoculars, <laughs> do all of that. So we intentionally did that. And the marketplace is we, we haven't fully launched a marketplace, but it's it's an extension of this house. We have so many black makers naturally baked into the renovation. Um, and we, we are trying to figure out a way, like, how do we bring that to life? How do we how do we direct people to our interior designer that helped us, um, you know, tell the story of who we are through this house? So, yeah, the marketplace is rolling out. Uh, my husband is a creative, so he is a visual artist. And there's some artwork that he's created, you know, while we've been here. And so we want to put that up on the marketplace. Some of the, the spices and cocktail mixes that I've made here, they're going to be on the market marketplace very soon. Yeah, cocktails are a big thing for you. Yeah. From what I see. <laughs> like, you are like a savant with the mixing of cocktails, especially during COVID. I was watching you <laughs> craft know, all right? your, like, COVID drinks um, at night yeah, for like, y'all. I'm like, am I drinking too much? I'm like, I'll cash <laughs> I was like, I, I think you're on par with the rest of us. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it kind of just happened, you know? I mean, I there are periods of time where I don't drink at all, but, like, Friday became, like, let's do happy hour. Let's let's come up with a signature drink. And actually, you know, when the world started opening up a bit like uh, last spring, we started hosting a Friday happy hour. Some of the some of the few people that we know in Athens, we would just go outside. We do happy hour outdoors. And I started doing that for for months. And that's been really cool. So, yeah, I mean, like being around people and being social and building community is 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 me is <laughs> my life. And in this book in watermelon and red birds it's funny because i kind of like and a lot of the recipes and a lot of the head notes i take people back to some of those times where like oh you know um lola's eli and was in athens and he came by the house and i made him this or i talk about juneteenth and prospect park the picnic that i had with other friends so I want to share those stories. I felt a little name droppy sometimes, but I'm like, no, nah, forget it's it. It's your network. It's your yeah. network. You know, yeah, it's I my mean, piece. Yeah. I mean, most you of built these relationships. Have, you should yeah. leverage them if they don't mind it. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say network. I would say that most of the people who are in my book um, are people that I have true, genuine relationships with, right? Right. People who know me. I, I, so they're I, your community more than your network. 100%. I think it's mm -hmm. totally different, right? My yep. network are people who I feel like, oh, yeah, they know me in food. Yeah, it's a good they, point. Yeah, mm -hmm. people who are my community, I can have a conversation about <laughs> what are you watching <laughs> What are you watching on TV? Like, okay. <laughs> right, right, right. It goes beyond the surface. But I mean, so so coming, I, I am curious because, you know, just one of the themes of a lot of these conversations from my podcast have been, why are there not enough black chefs in Atlanta? And, and ah. I feel like you are probably the most qualified to answer that question. Having gone to New York, which is, you know, the most accepting city, to coming back to Athens, uh, hmm. what is what is that contrast been like hmm. seeing? Because I mean, look, you look around, and it's a lot of white men with beards holding these restaurants. You know, or um, well, the chefs as these restaurants here in Atlanta, um, and I know that's there in Atlanta and, and New York. But but what's that like? Like, what's the difference like? And what what is Atlanta's problem? Um, why can't we get over this hump? Well, let me just say this first. This is a whew, wow. This is a lot to dissect. This, this, this first of all, I would say yes. I do feel at home in New York, um, but New York has some of the same problems as Atlanta and and, and or Athens. Mm. However, you know, it was nothing for me um, to be in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I go to a black wine shop. <laughs> a black beer garden, black owned beer garden. And this was before everybody was hashtag black owned. Like mm. my florist, my um <laughs> my uh dry cleaners, everything I did easily. And I, I didn't even know it. It was black owned. Now, as a young 20-something year old living in Atlanta, I had the same experience. Hmm. So I 
when I lived in Southwest Atlanta, and I always lived in the city of Atlanta when I lived in Atlanta. I never lived in the suburbs. There was nothing for me all day long to to patronize black owned restaurants and black owned businesses. And this was pre the internet, right? This is before you could Google stuff. Um, so I, I have to say that first. I think Athens is a whole nother conversation. Um, no, but there's a difference between having <laughs> black owned restaurants and then the restaurants or, or rather the chefs that make that jump to, you know, like, being well, on all the lists in Atlanta. Yeah. You I know? mean, Athens is a whole nother conversation. Like, I, I can't even get into Athens. I, I think that one of the things um, I have to say about Athens, and it's kind of a joke, but it's a statement. A lot of people think this is a big food city. I think Athens, um, the Athens I that I know and love <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. The Athens of food and exploration doesn't exist. I will say when I went to Asheville, back in the summer i was like this feels like athens of the the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s right um mm -hmm. but athens is so different there's so many big box retailers now like everything is an apartment for students so that's a whole nother podcast but i would say for atlanta jennifer as a media person you may not like my answer but i'm gonna say it i think that there are a lot of black chefs and restaurants that are worthy of being in the conversation around um, who's the best or who's doing great stuff. And then they're making money. I just think that for so long that the, the people or the persons who control media did not get out of their comfort zone. Like LT Wings has been around forever. And I, I don't want to talk about Wings for Atlanta because I'm like, okay, another wing story for Atlanta. But it's, it's, it is an example of like, I've been going to LT Wings for like 20 years. And like, it's only been in recent years that LT Wings has been a part of a conversation around the best takeout food in Atlanta. And that's because white people were not coming to the West Side. Period, point blank. Nobody white who wrote about food was coming to Cascade Road to LT Wings. I think when you started getting, I remember writing about it and talking about it for like Local Palette or something. I threw out LT Wings. I know that Michael Jordan knows about LT Wings and he's mentioned it before. But prior to that, I mean, nobody was talking about it. And listen, I love Bill Addison. Bill Addison is uh, a friend and a colleague and someone who supported my work from very early on but for a long time you know atlanta food was really just about like this certain area and people didn't come to the west side so there's been a long history of um food critics kessler um people just they just stayed in the click you know i think the internet changed all that though 100 percent, the internet changed uh, changed that and I think you, over the years, you will continue to see black restaurants and chefs thrive without being on a list. <laughs> um, and does the list really matter, right? Um, I think that, you know, black people who have money to spend in Atlanta, which there are a lot of black people who have money to spend in Atlanta and go to restaurants a lot, they don't care about a list. They just want to know, like... <laughs> Is the food good? Am I going to be treated well? Um, I know, but like, I think my problem as someone who is from Atlanta, like, grew up here, is that I don't always see, okay, whether or not we think lists or accolades are important, like, I do think it's important to chefs, you know? I mean, the amount of, the amount of DMs I get from people when they're not on a list, like, you know, and they're upset is interesting. But I just feel like if these, you know, if, there are certain restaurants that are always getting play, right? It, it's not fair, but to get more black Atlanta chefs into the national spotlight seems like a good goal because Atlanta is such a black city. I guess I just don't see the, and even not just black chefs, you know, Latino chefs, you know, we have a yeah. ton of Korean chefs, you know, I mean, there's just, I mean, the thing I love about Atlanta is its diversity and its food scene. You know, I, I mean, mean I, I rambled on with my response, but I think what I'm trying to get to is that where I am right now, I think that black chefs and black restaurateurs should not be focused on getting this national attention. So hmm. what do you want? Because I, I feel like 
I mean, as a person who has lived in a big city and traveled all around the country and around the world, we know that what sustains your business is neighborhoods. It's people. It's the, it's the people that are going to come every single week who live around the corner or live two neighborhoods over. I just think that, you know, what happens when a new restaurant opens and everyone flocks to that one? Because that's what the list tells you to do. I, I, I just want black chefs and restaurateurs to get away from, you know, um, chasing that national recognition because I see how the sausage is made, right? Um, <laughs> I have. You I've have. Seen, I've yep. seen how the sausage is made. I've been a part of making the sausage. Um, I've been with friends when they're reviewing restaurants. I was just with a colleague the other day reviewing a restaurant for something. I know how it all goes down. And there's so many factors that go into creating a list or deeming someone important and the shit changes all the time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, changes, yeah. it, cha it changes, it changes with people. Uh, but I will say when I look at 2022, I think that black culture, black people, black restaurants, black chefs just should continue to do their thing and not worry about lists. Um, and I kind of, you know, to, to bring it back to the cookbook, um, a lot of people will ask me, uh, how do I feel uh, about Juneteenth being a nationally recognized holiday? Like, should this just be a black holiday and or, you know, who should be celebrating it? Or how do you feel about putting <laughs> um, black stories or very intimate black stories in a book for public consumption? And my thing is, like, I'm fine with all of that. And I think that black people and black chefs and black restaurants will always have something special and black celebrations on Juneteenth will always be ours as long as we stay true to ourselves. Um, and so I guess that's the heart of what I'm saying about that is that stay true to yourself. The line at Barney's or whatever that that breakfast spot, no matter mm -hmm. if it's on <laughs> a best list or not, that brunch breakfast line um, all of these new brunch black owned spots in Atlanta, it's going to be, it's going to be long, <laughs> even if we don't like the waffles or, you know, right. Oh, <laughs> right. it's going to stay long because they have something special beyond just, you know, a chef that's on a national list. So no one was talking about shark bar back in the day, but if you are black of a certain age and, um, you were aspirational, um, you knew about the shark bar. I don't recall a lot of magazines talking about shark bar. And I was a person who I picked up creative loafing every week. Um, I don't recall reviews about shark bar. Do you remember Jennifer? No. <laughs> no. And I can't say I knew shark bar either. So there you oh, go. Wow. Okay. There you go. So, I'm just going to wow. call myself out. Yeah. 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 I mean, shark bar. I mean, it was right next to mix mix on Peace street. Oh my it God. Was a mix. Yeah, it wow. was a fine dining restaurant with white tablecloth um, where, you know, it was nothing to walk in and, you know, you would see a member of Outkast or um, or Goody Mob, you know, having having food. And it was, you know, what people would call now upscale soul food. And I'm doing quotations or it would be considered <laughs> what someone would call refined or upscale Southern food. But it was like, whoa, it was a, the atmosphere, the music, it was, it was ahead of the time, but no, no, no white publication was writing. I don't recall was writing and reviewing shark bar. <laughs> and, see, and, and I think and, like, while, while they're still going to have all the business and there's going to be a line or the reservations going to be hard to get, I still believe as somebody who likes, you know, many layers of the onion. I want to see them getting that note. Yeah. You know, I want, I want white Atlanta to know about that because it's an important restaurant, even if they're not going there, just from my own point of view. And when I'm covering, this, no, I, I, you I know, agree. I agree. It, Cause I it's agree. part of the landscape, right? I mean, I if, if we're, a, I think the thing that I'm getting at is Atlanta's a black city oh, and, yeah. and, and, and more black restaurateurs and chefs deserve the spotlight in the national spotlight i just think we do like i just because i feel like i feel like we're underrepresented i just i just do i just don't feel like well, it i think i think that's a conversation that the powers that be have to you know you know as much as 
I don't write for um, um, Atlanta publications. I think when I've gotten opportunities, I'm, I make sure to always, always shout out Atlanta and Athens and black owned spots. But you definitely I think, do. I think it's, it, it is, I think we've gotten better and I'll say we, <laughs> I won't just put it all off on um, media people in Atlanta. I think over the years, things have gotten a lot better. When I open up Atlanta magazine now, um, yes. I don't feel like it's one-sided. You know, there's more Beaufort Highway. There's more Black-owned spots that weren't being talked about. I think things have changed and they will continue to change because the restaurant world has completely freaking changed, right? But it's Just so like, like, this is why I said to Mike Jordan when I interviewed him, I was like, God, I don't remember Atlanta being this cool when I was oh. a kid. I mean, it is cool. It is even cooler now than because there's so many layers. Like last night, I was in Summer Hill, like, and and I know there's a lot of like, you know, feelings about that neighborhood. But eating at Jarrett Stewart's Little Bear and then going to Sarah O'Brien and having Big Softy, and it, it's just wild. Um, these neighborhoods that have popped up all over Atlanta that have, you know, that just have all these different restaurants now. There's so many. I don't think I can keep up, and I didn't used to feel that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I listen. I, I do every now and then come to Atlanta and I um, I went to El Tercero. I think mm -hmm, that's how you mm -hmm. say it, right off yeah. Austin Place yesterday. People and love that, that spot. Was, it, was, it was, I got there before the line was long and that was really cool. I rented Redbird maybe in April and that was cool to be a Redbird in such a, a spot that was originally, I think that was the original like, location of Bacchanali. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool to be there. I feel like a lot of times when people hit me up who are going to Atlanta and they ask me where to go, I'm like, uh, I don't know what to say. Maybe because I don't know where they're staying. I'm trying to figure out what kind of food. I think Atlanta is still figuring out their food identity. But I will say that there are plenty of people in Atlanta that I know who are still having fabulous parties at home <laughs> and still are entertaining at home. That has not gone anywhere because they don't want to be dealing with, you know, uh, being rushed out of a restaurant or dealing with, you know, people telling them they can't wear tights or things that look like yoga pants in a restaurant. <laughs> so they're like, <laughs> I'm talking about the former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lass Bottoms, trying to go to a Was restaurant. Was that the Capitol Grill? Yeah, it was Capitol Grill yeah. in the Perimeter Mall. Mm -hmm. I, I have so many Black professional friends who, honestly, they're like, well, we just entertain at home. <laughs> they go to Publix, they go to the buttery, they go to all these fancy places and get all the food and entertain at home. So I want to be the cook can do it. If you're going to stay at home and I go to Atlanta restaurants, which I think you should do both. Here's, here's a cookbook. <laughs> here's, mm -hmm. here's your guide to summer cooking um, while you're entertaining your friends. I think that should be a balance. And I think that's why people have cookbooks, right? So what do you cook yourself for comfort? Like if oh, you've had a shitty day, what, what's the, what's the meal that you make yourself or your family that makes you feel better? 100% French fries. Okay. Nice. Nice <laughs> choice, Nicole. French fries. <laughs> like I have some wavy fries in this cookbook in the festivals and fairs chapter. And they're kind of loaded. I guess you would call them a loaded fry, but the shape is so beautiful. Um, I think like when you have potatoes and it's just not like, uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, rectangle shape or shoestring shape. Like when you can do like, uh, crinkle or, um, waffle or wavy, let's do it. So I cook French fries, um, uh, always. Um, I, I, I'm like, if I write another cookbook or every cookbook needs to have a French fry recipe, the last OG, I had French fries. Up south, I did uh, potatoes and beets. But yeah, if I'm having a long day, I always keep a few potatoes here. And I'm like, I made me some home homemade fries, always. Um, and is there anything else coming up that you want to promote? And how can people follow you? I, I think the biggest thing is that um, this cookbook, Watermelon and Red Birds, a cookbook, for Juneteenth and Black Celebration is so important. I mean, it is the first cookbook solely dedicated to the foods of the holiday. Um, it is out May 31st. I feel like, you know, you need to get it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a it's beautiful cover. Thank you. 
It's in its second printing. I guess I can say that here. It's not out yet, and we're already in the second printing. Wow. Congrats. Um, yeah. So pre-order, pre-ordering is is the way to go. I have a lot of um places that I'll be this summer that I'll be rolling out. But I, I think that's the most important thing. I think that people should start celebrating now for Juneteenth. You should use um Memorial Day, which is the 30th, as your test run for Juneteenth. Um, but yeah, get the cookbook. That's that. I think that's the easiest thing I can say. To Are people. there any the preliminary thing. recipes popping up anywhere? I know you've had some recipes in the New York Times on occasion. Um, um you know, there. I, I, I think that I'm. Uh, I know that I'm in Essence magazine. I'm. I haven't seen it yet. Um, mm -hmm. So my mom told me she was like, "I just got the Essence magazine. You're in Essence." I'm not sure what what recipes are in there. Um, some of the recipes that I'm excited about and, uh, particularly after I went to the Inman Park Festival in Atlanta, I have a, um, corn dog recipe in the book, mm. which is a very basic batter. But, um, in addition to the corn dog recipe, I have uh, a baby zucchini corn dogs and Japanese turnip corn Ooh, balls. That's cute. Baby zucchini corn dog. Oh, my kid yeah. like those. Yes, totally. And then the Japanese turnip corn balls, um, which are amazing. Um, that's some of my favorite recipes. And then <laughs> I posted a, a photo of me eating a funnel cake, which was okay. It was the inside was too. I like funnel cake that um, is crisp and not that like soft dough in the inside. But I have a funnel cake recipe in the book. I, I love it. It's so fun. It's it's. It makes everyone smile to have a funnel cake and I do apple topping and mangoes. So I will say like right now, I'm really, really like jonesing on the festival and fairs chapter. And I, some of those recipes are coming out with different pubs and they're out right now. But yeah, I mean, listen, the book is really fun. You know, we talked about some heavy stuff today about black owned restaurants and you know, owning land. But I, I think when you open the book, I know when anyone opens the book, you just have a smile on your face because it's it's colorful, it's fresh, it's approachable. It's food that will take you back to summers. I, mean, I could feel the warmth of summer creeping up on my shoulders as you talked about all the festival and fair food and the recipes. I'm super excited. Um, and where can people follow you? I am food culturist on instagram and uh i am food cultures on my professional facebook page and i think i'm going to change that i think i'm in the process of just changing that to nicole a taylor i'm on twitter as well i probably need to up my twitter game but same thing food cultures pinterest uh i have some house stuff on pinterest so people interested in like um the maroon house and you know what the inside Which you can follow like. on instagram too and they have cute little shots of all of the rooms and stuff i mean it's a beautiful aesthetic uh, yeah we haven't I've, I've been slowly teasing out like what the final outcome the house is basically renovated now but on the instagram page because i have a few pubs that are want to showcase parts of the house i've just been teasing out um the process of us getting to the finished project project um so yeah follow the maroon house on instagram and you can see some of the photos and i tag um malini b which is a wallpaper maker she has a partnership with lulu and george and i tag mm -hmm. my light person so i'm all about making sure that uh it's not about me <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 even though i just told you my all of my handles but um yeah i'm all over the internet and you are the the subject of this podcast so it's okay <laughs> but um i really appreciate your time nicole i find you fascinating and your work is is always useful and i can't wait to get the book which i have pre-ordered thank you um well thank you for being here again Thank you for having me, Jennifer. I appreciate it. And thanks for all the work that you do, all the cool. I'm always excited when I open up an Atlanta pub and see your byline. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All right. Well, have a great week. <laughs> you too. All right. Bye. Peace. Well, that's this week's episode. Thank you to Nicole for joining me and thank you for listening. If you want to keep up with me, you can catch me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. 
Next week, I'm joined by Chef Zeb Stevenson of Redbird Restaurant in Atlanta. Again, we'll be back next Sunday with Zeb Stevenson. Until then, this has been Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds. Thanks for listening.